Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. Go down to verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you law breakers. May Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. So what we've got before us today is a sobering text. It's a lot different than the text last week where we talked about our good father and the good gifts that he gives those who ask him. Search, seek, knock. We've got a very sobering and serious text. It might be one of the most serious and scariest passages in the whole Bible. I meditated on this text a lot this week. And I want everybody to know that I'm going to be very careful with how I present this lesson. Um, I do not want to crush anybody who is saved, whether it be in here or somebody that's listening later on. Um, I don't want to crush a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, but at the same time, I do not want to make comfortable somebody that is lost. So I have to find that balance. So bear with me today as I tackle this text. I've often wondered if there's another way to understand this text. Ever read a Bible verse and you wonder, well, maybe it's to be understood a little bit differently than what I'm reading, what it sounds like it's saying. And sometimes texts that we're familiar with and we think that we know really, really good are misunderstood by us for various reasons. It could be that we don't understand the cultural background. Sometimes that'll mess us up. We may not understand the original intent of the author or the broader context of a passage. And sometimes we even hold a poor or a bad translation of the scriptures in our hands. And that causes us to misunderstand or misapply verse or verses. It's always best to read a verse or verses multiple times, consult different translations, meditate on them, cross-reference them, look at all the things that I just mentioned, the culture, the intent, the background, in order to understand the text properly. So I pondered on Matthew 7, 13 through 14's contrast of many versus few. And the reason I pondered on it is because there's another text in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, where Yeshua reprimands his disciples because his disciples are arguing among themselves about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And he says, listen, guys, be quiet. We don't do things like the heathens do. The heathens lord over people and exercise authority and shove people around and push people around. But among you, the greatest will be the one who serves. If anybody wants to be first, you've got to be a bondservant. Then he says in Matthew 20, verse 28, and I quote, Even as the Son of Man, talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there Yeshua says that he gives his life as a ransom for many. That sounds like many will be ransomed or rescued. He doesn't say that 
he opens up the possibility for ransom or rescue, but he says he gives his life as a ransom. A ransom means exactly what you think, a price paid for somebody's freedom or rescue. So what about Matthew 7, 13 through 14, where it says few will find life, because if he gives his life as a ransom for many, why is only a few being saved? I've heard a lot of attempts to harmonize those two texts. One view that I've read recently is that Matthew 7 is speaking just about the coming destruction upon Jerusalem that would happen in the lifetime of the apostles, the first century, uh, A.D. 70. Um, I've entertained that view. I have not accepted that view. I don't think that it's correct. The problem that I have with it is that I don't see that in the context of Matthew 5 through 7. I don't see that in the context. Plus, a few verses later, we just read verses 21 through 23, it appears to be a judgment concerning people that will be cast out and unable to enter the kingdom of heaven. It sounds to me more like he's talking about the last day, the final judgment. So although I've entertained that 70 AD view, I have not accepted it. This is the best I can tell, the best way I can harmonize those two texts, as we should do, rightly dividing the word of truth, right? is that there is not a contrast between the many and the few in Matthew 20. Matthew 20 where he says he gives his life as a ransom for many, he doesn't mention anything about the few. But in Matthew 7, he contrasts the many and the few. What I think is going on here is this. There will be many people saved in one sense of the word. But in comparison to those who will be lost, they will only be a few. Uh, so take for instance, you know, for illustration, let's say that there's a million people that find life, eternal life. That's a lot of people. That's a big number. That's many. But compared to those who will be lost, let's say 100 million, that's few. One versus 100 is few versus many. And I think that's the harmony of those differing texts. So I wanted to get that out of the way as we begin. Again, Matthew 7, verse 13, he says, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who go through it. So we've got this gate and not just this gate and this is going to be important in the sermon today. It's not just a gate. We've also got this road. We've got a gate and a road that are broad and that way leads to destruction. Destruction is a word picture. It means condemnation. Uh, it means exactly what you think about. Something ceases to exist or its usefulness is no more. It's like if you get in a wreck in your car and somebody looks at you and says, your car is totaled, sir or ma'am. You know you just drove in your car for the last time. It's gone. You're not driving in it anymore. That's the word picture that we get with destruction. Destruction comes to the many who go through the wide gate and the broad way. And in contrast to that, in verse 14, he says, how narrow is the gate... And difficult the way or the road that leads to life and few find it. And that word difficult, HCSB uses difficult. Other translations say narrow is the path or the road. Straight, constricted, compressed, depending on what Bible you read. The narrow gate. Think of one person at a time being able to fit through a gate. You can only get one person in there at a time. Maybe you even have to turn sideways to go through it. Versus this really, really wide open broad gate that you can have a big group of people, hundreds of people, go through there uh, at one time. Uh, same thing with the path. The path, not just the gate is narrow, but the path is narrow or difficult or constricted. Um, some people preach this text to only be about the Messiah, 
being the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, he says so much in John 14, verse 6, which is another text and another gospel. I think it's okay to introduce it in here, bring it in here. John 14, verse 6, a verse that I learned when I was a little boy, when I could barely talk. We learned Bible verses out of the King James Version. A lot of my memory verses still come out, King James. He says, I am the way. This is our Messiah speaking. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's pretty popular in the world today to say there's many paths to God. Like God is up on top of a mountain and you don't have to go just one way to get to it. You can go all across in different ways and eventually it will lead to the same destination. Uh, many ways to God, many ways to heaven. But Yeshua doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. That might sound good. It might make other people feel good. It might make a preacher get popular. But that's not what our Messiah says. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If you want to get to the Father, you've got to go through me. So John 14, verse 6, it automatically excludes unbelievers. People that don't believe in God or Christ, they don't have a chance of making it to eternal life. Same thing with atheists, agnostics. They would be under the category of, of unbelievers. And there's a lot of people like that throughout history and in the world today. So those people are excluded. It would also, though, exclude Judaism, Jewish people, that don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. Judaism or Hebraism, Judaism is actually not a bad word. It it's first shows up in the books of Maccabees, and it basically means the way of life for the people of Judah. It basically means you observe Yahweh's law what it means in Maccabees. But Judaism today, and, and even then, the one that rejected the Messiah, they have a common background. They have the same books that we have. When we open up to Genesis through Deuteronomy, what we call the Pentateuch or the Torah, um, they may call them by their Hebrew names, Brilsheth and Shemot and so forth and so on. But they read the same books that we read. Um, they have the same prophets that we have uh, for a lot of it but they do not believe that Yeshua is the promised Messiah. The man from Nazareth, they say that's not the Messiah. As a matter of fact, they speak very derogatorily of the one we would call the Messiah. Not only does John 14, 6 exclude Judaism or Jewish people, it excludes Muslims, Islam. Now, I want to say here, and I get in trouble sometimes when I say this with people, but... Uh, Islam, who does have common accounts in their holy book as well, the Quran, like creation, Abraham, Moses, uh, they actually have a greater respect for Yeshua than Judaism does. Uh, they view Yeshua as a great prophet. Now, that's not good enough, but that's how they view him. He's a great prophet, and when they talk about him, often after they speak his name, they will say, peace and blessings be upon him. As a matter of fact, I saw one Muslim man get very upset when he heard somebody speak derogatorily about who we would call the Messiah. He said, you can't talk about one of our prophets like that. He's a holy man, one of the holiest men. But they don't believe that Yeshua is the son of Yahweh. They don't believe he's the Messiah. They don't believe he died for our sins or was resurrected on the third day. Some Muslims believe that Yeshua never was even crucified on the cross. Um, I was reading today about that, that... Uh, it was actually somebody else. Others believe that he was crucified, but he was taken down before he died, and he died a death at a later time. So they definitely don't believe the message of the good news like we do. 
about the death and resurrection of our Messiah. So those are the three major religions on the earth, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Now, we would be a combination of like Hebraism and Christianity. We don't go as far as traditional Christians do, and we don't go as far as uh, traditional Judaism goes, but we're a combination. We believe the whole Bible, right? Follow it and practice it. Um, there are some good teachings in all three of these major religions, and I believe that all three are focused upon the same God. Now, some of you may disagree with that, and that's fine. Uh, I think that their ideas about God differ, but I think they have a common background. It's kind of like I think the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the first century served the same God. Even though the Sadducees didn't believe in angels or the resurrection, didn't mean they didn't serve the same mighty one. I think Judaism, Islam, and Christianity serve the same God. I don't think it can be legitimately shown that those three religions worship different gods. However, I don't want to stop there. What can be shown is that out from that one God, you see three different paths or three different understandings. Uh, whether or not you believe one of the three is correct or that some of the three manipulate certain doctrines or understandings, uh, you do see different understandings in those three major religions. And that's where the problem lies. Because if Yeshua is the only way to Yahweh, to the Father, then he is the narrow gate by which we enter, Matthew seven fourteen, Narrow is the gate. So that excludes everyone who doesn't believe in Yeshua as the Messiah, the Son of Yahweh. Traditional Christians would agree with me up to that point. However, and this is where it gets more serious, this is why the text is sobering, is that Yeshua doesn't just say, narrow is the gate. He also says, narrow is the road. And I'm presenting to you in this lesson that that's two different things. The narrow gate is belief in him, acceptance of him. The narrow road has to do with the life that we live. I want to show that to you in this remainder of the lesson. Remember, how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. The old King James that I grew up reading says it like this. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. I'm saying that's talking about eternal life. Not just a good life now, but eternal life is what I think he's talking about here. I think this is a judgment text on that day text. So now, even for those who believe in the Messiah or say that they believe in the Messiah, what about the narrow road? I start talking like this and I get accused of all sorts of things. Work salvation, earning salvation, denying the finished work of Yeshua. I get labeled all of these things when I talk like this. But I want you to think about it. The Messiah is the one that's speaking here. He's still in the Sermon on the Mount. I've taken a long time to go through the Sermon on the Mount, but he spoke it all at one time. In Matthew chapter 5, he sat down on the mountain, he began to teach the crowds, and he does not get up until he finishes this sermon, and he goes down from the mountain, and then he goes heals a man with a serious skin disease or leprosy. So this is all one cohesive sermon. He spoke it all at one time. The Messiah is speaking here. I'm not the one who made this up. I'm reading the words of the Master. It is he that speaks of the narrow gate and the narrow road that leads to life. So you can raise your hand and say, I accept the Messiah as, as Master of my life. Master means boss, owner, leader, Lord. Our English Bible is rendered. I accept him as Lord. You can stake the claim that you came through the narrow gate that leads to the Father. What about the narrow road? What about the life that you live? What about your walk? I think that's why he calls it the road, the narrow road, because 
The word walk, you walk down a road, right? Walk in the New Testament is often used for how you practice things, what you do in your life. 1 John 2, 6 says, if we say we believe in the Messiah, we should walk as he walked. It doesn't mean we have to have a photography or a video of his footsteps and his legs and how he moves and we got to walk like him literally. It means we got to live like he lived. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about that we walk in the footsteps of, of faith of our father Abraham, the way we live. Um, in Acts, it says we no longer walk like the heathens. It's talking about the way they live. So this narrow path is the way that we live. It's the way that we walk. Now, when I teach, I normally follow the verse pattern. I just go verse by verse. But what we're going to do is we're going to skip over 15 through 20 in this lesson. Next time I teach, I'll teach on 15 through 20. But I want to go to 21 through 23, part of what we opened with, because I think they're connected. Um, I think he just gives a little insertion or parentheses there about the false prophets in this text. Look at verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, here we've got a group of people who call Yeshua Lord or Master, if you prefer Master, Owner, Boss, like I said. They acknowledge Him as their Master. Yes, I believe in Him, they say. Yes. And they don't just call Him Lord, they call Him Lord, Lord, which is an emphasis. It's like when we bold a word or underline a word, the Hebrews would repeat a word to emphasize it. So they emphatically declare Him to be their Master. So this is not Jewish people. They don't even come through the narrow gate. This is not Muslims. They don't come through the narrow gate. And it's definitely not unbelievers, atheists, agnostics. This is talking about people that believe or at least claim to believe in the Messiah and call him master. We would be part of this group. We claim to believe in the Messiah. We call him master. And some people in this group will enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice the beginning of the verse in 21. Not everyone who says. That means some who say that will enter the kingdom, but not everyone. Not everyone who says it will enter the kingdom. So according to this verse, calling Yeshua Lord or acknowledging that he's master is not enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Words are necessary. Words are good and a profession is needed, but it's not sufficient. Words are not sufficient for salvation, according to this text. Now the contrast here is one person says Lord, Lord, emphatic, but they don't do the will of the Father in heaven. He says that not everyone who calls him Lord will enter, but... Notice the contrast, only the one who does the will of the Father in heaven. So it's saying something versus doing something. A careful reading shows that he's teaching we have to do something to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that something is the will of the Father. Well, what is the will of the Father here? Well, you talk to a lot of traditional Christians and what they say is the will of the Father is just to believe in the Messiah. Now, I agree that that's part of the Father's will, that we must believe in the one whom he hath sent. But that's the narrow gate. That's the narrow gate. I'm good with that. Is that what Yeshua is talking about here? I don't think so. Because he's already told us that not everyone who calls him Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is talking about people who already say they believe in the Messiah as their master. Do you know the Messiah? They raise their hand and say, yeah, I know him. I call him Lord. I call him Master. So it can't be talking about, the will of the Father here is not talking about believing or accepting the Messiah. It can't be. Because all these people do that. He's not dealing with just believing in him or accepting him. 
The one who does the will of the Father, it's not difficult to know what this is if we just read in context of the sermon. It's not just the one that says that Yeshua is Lord, Lord, Master, Master, but the one who obeys His teachings. The one who listens to what He says and obeys it, puts it to practice. That's the will of the Father. All the teachings that we went over in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Don't forget Matthew 5, 17. Because somebody's going to say the will of the Father is the Torah. I agree with that. But in Matthew 5, he contrasts a wrong understanding of a lot of the laws in the Torah. You've heard that it said. He said, but I say unto you, I explain it properly. So the will of the Father is the Torah. But it's the Torah as taught by the Messiah properly. He's dealt with being humble. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Being merciful, being a peacemaker. All that's included. He's given us instructions on do not murder. Not just not just not to physically murder, but don't hate your brother in your heart. Adultery, not just physical adultery, but also lust in your mind and your heart. He's told us instructions on proper marriage. Oath-taking, not retaliating. When somebody does evil to you, don't repay evil back. Love your enemies. Be like your Father in heaven. The rain comes on the just and the unjust. He's taught us about giving to the poor, not storing up treasures on the earth. He's taught us about fasting, prayer, seeking the kingdom, not being judgmental, not being hypocritical. Make sure you take the log out of your eye before you go get the speck out of your brother's eye. He's taught us to love your neighbor as yourself, for that's the law and the prophets. He's taught us all of these things, which is in line with the Torah. He's teaching the Torah. He did not come. He said, don't even think that I came to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to confirm or fulfill, which means to do the opposite of abolish. That's what he's talking about in Matthew 7, 21. Only the one who does the will of the Father enters the kingdom of heaven. We must be obedient to the Messiah's instructions to enter the kingdom of heaven. But Brother Matthew, what about grace? What about mercy? Well, those of you that have listened to me teach know that I love grace and mercy. I would not be standing here before you if it wasn't for Yahweh's mercy on my life. None of us would have salvation. You can't even think about entering the kingdom without the mercy of our Heavenly Father through His Messiah. None of us deserve eternal life. We've all messed up numerous times. That's what our Messiah is for. If we could do it on our own, our Messiah wouldn't have to be sent. But when we mess up, or if we have messed up before in the past, or even yesterday, does that mean that we stop trying to obey the instructions of Yahweh? Do we stop making an effort because we fail at something? The other morning, I forgot to make Tisha's coffee. I woke up. I make her coffee every morning. It's a little gesture of love that I do. She does all kind of little things for me. We do little things for each other all the time because we love each other. And that's what a husband and wife are supposed to do, serve one another. So one of the things I do is make her coffee every morning. And I was still at the house. It was about 8 o'clock. I was running a little bit behind. This time of the year, I leave out about 8 o'clock. It's about to leave for work. And I get up to walk outside and I say, I'll see you later, honey. And she looks over at her nice stand and she looks at me with this pitiful look on her face. And she says, where's my coffee? <laughs> and you know what I did? I said, I'm sorry, honey. And I went and made her coffee. What if I looked at her and said, I forgot to make it this morning and then I left. She'd have held a grudge all day against me <laughs> if I'd have done that. 
what if I honestly forgot and she didn't recognize and I left home and when I got home, she said, you forgot to make me coffee this morning. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. But the next morning I woke up and I said, eh, I forgot it yesterday. I'm not going to worry about it this morning. And I leave again. That little gesture of love that I do for her will be gone. And it's the little foxes that spoil the vines, brothers and sisters. Little things roll into big things. And then big things cause the marriage to suffer. I make my wife coffee every morning. It's one thing I do for her because I love her. She's my queen. She does things for me all the time because she loves me. We have a covenant with each other, and we maintain that covenant by serving each other. Amen? Now, let me take this a little bit deeper, and you'll see the point that I'm getting at. Marriage, it's a covenant. Okay, Marriage is about love, forgiveness, understanding, work, forbearance, and long-suffering. All of those things. Tisha and I do not have a perfect marriage, but we do strive to have one. We do. We've had to practice forgiveness for wrongs numerous times in the last 24 years. But that's because we both want this to work out between us. Till death do we part. It's what we said and we want that to be true. I don't want to leave her until either she dies or I die. And even then I wouldn't want to leave my wife because I love her. We love each other so we serve each other. We do not expect perfection. We know that we will have bad days. But you know what we do expect from each other? A striving, a commitment, loyalty. We expect that. I expect that out of my wife, and she expects it out of me. If I come home one day, let's say I come home one day from work, and I say, honey, I love you. I want you to know that I love you, but I've decided I'm not going to be working anymore for you and the family to provide. And at nighttime, I'm going to be going off and doing my own thing at night. And on the nights that I come home, I'll be sleeping on the couch instead of, the bed and she's like yeah right you're going to be sleeping on the couch <laughs> if I said those things she would think I was out of my mind and you know why she would think that because if I said those things as her husband I would be out of my mind how do I expect to stay married to a woman that I say I'm not going to work to provide anymore for you or the family but I love you and I'm going to go out every night and do my own thing but I love you no it doesn't work that way it doesn't work that way I can call her my wife all that I want to but she'll say, you act that way for too long and I won't be your wife anymore because we have a covenant, a contract with one another that we're loyal and committed to each other. And that's how it is with Yahweh. Yahweh knows you, Raymond, you, William, you, Brother Frankie, TJ, he knows you. He knows you struggle. He knows all your past sins and Yahweh already knows the times you're going to sin in the future. But he does expect a commitment from you. He expects covenant loyalty from you. He expects a loving faith-based relationship. When we fall, we can come to him with a penitent heart. And he will forgive us based upon the work of the Messiah. Even if we mess up big time. And we genuinely come to him in repentance. He's waiting there with open arms. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He's waiting there with open arms. to Put the gold ring on our finger. My son, you're lost, but now you're found. Even if we mess up big time, if we genuinely repent, he'll forgive us. But if we don't repent and we don't work and strive and we're not loyal and we're not committed, will he accept us? 
Not according to this text right here. And this text is out of the mouth of our Master and Savior. Not according to this text. He says, Not everyone that calls me Lord will enter, but only the one who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. You have got to be committed to doing the Father's will in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me show you another reason why I know that the one who does the will of Yeshua's Father in heaven means that we must be obedient. And we don't have to go to another book. The best way to interpret a text is just to stay right there, first and foremost. You can start branching out after you've camped out a little bit. But don't branch out until you've camped out in that text. I ask people about a text, and they'll try to explain a text with another text. Let's stick with the first text first. Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Look at it. Therefore, on the basis of what I've just said about depart from me, you lawbreakers, and the one who does the will of the Father. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew, and pounded that house, yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and its collapse was great. So, just hearing the words of Yeshua is equivalent with just calling him Lord. He says we must hear his words and act on them, or some Bibles say and do them. Act on them means you're obedient to his instructions that he gives us here in this sermon. He didn't just teach this sermon for us to say, well, that was a good sermon, and then not apply it to our life. He taught that sermon so that we would be obedient to the things that he instructed us to do. The greatest sermon ever preached. He's teaching us the will of the Father, the proper way to carry out the instructions. And if you listen to Yeshua and obey his teachings, you're the wise man. You're the sensible man. And when the rains fall and the rivers rise and the winds blow, which probably, I haven't researched this in as much detail as I'd like, but that probably refers to trials, tests, sufferings, and persecutions. When all that happens and you've listened to the Messiah and obeyed the Messiah, it doesn't matter what storm comes your house is going to stand firm because you built on the rock. You didn't just hear him and walk away from the mountain and said, he seemed like a nice guy, but I'm really not going to follow what he said. If you did that, you're the foolish man. And when the storms come, your house is going to collapse. You see that word collapse? At least that's how it's rendered in verse 27 in my Bible. If you make notes in your Bible, that's the same thing. Verse 27 collapse is the same thing as destruction in verse 13. Same thing. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. The collapse was great. And then the life in verse 14, you see that word life? Narrow is the gate, difficult the road that leads to life. That's equal to the house standing strong in verse 25. Same thing. He's just saying the same thing in two different ways. Now look back in Matthew 7 to verses 22 through 23. He says, on that day, if you do a word study of the phrase on that day, it'll be talking about final judgment. Matthew 25, sheep and goats. John 5, the resurrection of the just and the unjust. On that day. Okay. Many will say to me, Master, Master, Boss, Boss, the one who owns me, my owner, my owner. 
Didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Question mark. Didn't we do all these things in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So here we have a description of the people who, we, who will be destroyed or, or whose house will collapse. Once again, they claim to believe in the Messiah. They emphatically declared him to be their master. Master, master, Lord, Lord. They thought they would be saved. This is why it's probably the most scariest text in the whole Bible. Because here we have a group of many people who live their whole life and are at the judgment and are standing there and think that they're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And he looks at them and says, Get away from me. I never knew you. Depart from me. That's very scary. It's very sobering. And they say prophecy and driving out demons and doing miracles. And what that should let you know is that prophecy, casting out demons and miracles are not proof that somebody is saved. It should let you know that. Now, I believe in all three of those. I believe in prophecy. I believe in miracles. I believe in the casting out of demons. It can be done by true believers, but false people can do those things too. Remember the sorcerers in Egypt? They could do a lot of the same things. Not all, but a lot of the same things that... Moses and Aaron did and in Matthew 24 verse 24 Yeshua warns us of false anointed ones who will show great signs and wonders so signs and wonders is not where it's at that's not how you tell if somebody is saved it's not how you tell if a person or a church is legit signs and wonders do not equal the truth I have actually heard miracle stories from people of all religions I listened to one from a Muslim man about his daughter the other day, how she was miraculously healed. Just because Yahweh is compassionate upon a person now doesn't mean they'll be saved eternally. We serve a loving father, a compassionate father, and you could have an agnostic or an atheist have a weak moment and are broken in spirit, and Yahweh, as loving as he is, gives them a, a material or physical blessing, causes a miracle to happen in their life because he loves them. doesn't mean that they'll have eternal life. So all the hype and all the people that you see in churches across the earth doesn't prove they're in the truth. If a church just multiplies and multiplies and more and more people come there and they're saying we're being blessed by the Lord, none of that proves that that church is in the truth. All the cameras, the lights, the thousands of people, the TV programs, the pastors in suits, driving nice cars, people singing up on the stage, people crying when they pray and praise and lift their hands. Not all of that is bad, but none of that is sufficient to prove salvation. I cry sometimes when I pray because I get overwhelmed by the mercy of Yahweh. But tears alone are not sufficient to prove that I have salvation. If we are not acting upon Yeshua's words and doing the will of the Father, we will be lost. And a lot of times we read this text. Everybody reads this text and wants to say it's the guy down the road that it's talking about. Well, it's not about me. It's the fellow down the road. It's my neighbor. We all have a tendency to do that because of pride. But what I try to do this week is, is be introspective. And that's what I humbly ask for you to do is try to be introspective because this is serious business. The same thing goes for this church and your life. It does not matter how blessed you feel or think that you are. It doesn't matter how many times you've seen miracles, heard prophecies, or how loud you cry out to the Messiah as your master. 
If you are not serious about obedience, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you only hear the words of the Master and do not act upon them, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You say, well, I made it through the narrow gate, but you didn't walk the narrow path. The people here heard the words, I never knew you, depart from me, you lawbreakers. Anomos or anomia in the Greek. It means no law without law. Some Bibles say you who practice lawlessness. Uh, King James says workers of iniquity. All of them mean the same thing. Lawbreakers is a good translation. And before I could get accused of this, but before somebody tries to accuse me, not necessarily here in this church, but here's this lesson later on. Somebody just tries to accuse me of, of thinking that I'm just talking about wearing tassels or having a beard or something like that. Now, those things are part of the law, and I'm not embarrassed about those laws. Those are laws, too. And Matthew 5.19 says, if we want to be great in the kingdom, we've got to practice and teach even the smallest of the commandments. So if a tassel is a small commandment or a beard is, those are important, too. But I'm not really focusing on that in this lesson, even though I'm not ashamed about those things. I'm talking about genuine, heartfelt obedience to the commandments you love Yahweh so much that you do not want to break His heart. It's not because you have to. It's because you want to. It comes from way, that way deep down place inside. Or you wake up in the morning and you're like, I get to serve Yahweh another day. I get to obey Him one more time. He woke me up. I went to sleep and He woke me back up. Oh, I'm so excited. The Sabbath is almost here. I'm so excited. I'm totally committed talking about keeping the Torah from the inside out, not just putting on an outward show, a big phylactery or a long tassel or a long robe or a beard and walking around all pious and holier than thou. No, I'm talking about genuine heartfelt obedience. Genuine obedience. You have to be totally committed to Yahweh from the heart. Again, with my marriage illustration, what if Tisha asked me the first day of our marriage? We've been married one day. She rolls over in the bed and she says, Honey, you love me? I say, I love you, honey. Are you committed? And I say, I'm committed. I'm probably at about 78%. <laughs> what, would she, what would she say? 78%. That's dumb. She wants to hear 100%. And if I'm a husband, I need to be committed to her 100%. And she's committed to me 100%. So we have to be committed 100%. Somebody asked me, they said, what about the thief on the cross or the criminal on the cross? I don't like that word translation thief there so much. But What about the criminal on the cross? He didn't do any good works. The criminal on the cross did everything that he could do until he died. <laughs> he did everything he could do. And Yeshua, knowing the hearts of men, knew that he had a repentant heart. And had, hypothetically, he had the opportunity to get down off of that cross based upon the words of Yeshua that said he would be in paradise he would have been an obedient man that listened to the Master and did the words of the Master. But he did everything that he could do. And I'm not against deathbed repentance. I believe that deathbed repentance can be factual if it's genuine. If it's genuine. I don't think that that teaches or that that means that you can just ignore Yahweh and say, well, eventually, before I die, I'll repent. Now, he knows whether we're serious or whether it's just a show, right? He knows that. So the criminal on the cross did everything that he could do. <laughs> he had genuine faith. And that faith would have produced works had it had the opportunity to do so. Now, I'm not saying 100% commitment. 
Please don't put words in my mouth or misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you will be sinless. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you won't make mistakes. I'm just talking about loyalty. Thriving. Just like in marriage. You're committed. You're loyal. You must be committed and loyal to Yahweh. When you fall, you get back up. When you sin, you repent. And you fight not to sin again. Go and sin no more. Now, I'm sure that somebody will come to me after hearing this message, maybe in here or maybe outside of here, and say this, and I don't have a problem with this understanding. This is a legitimate way to understand the relationship between faith and works. Brother Matthew, obedience is the fruit of salvation, and we obey because he's changed our heart and we belong to him. That's a legitimate way to explain the relationship between faith and works. Everybody doesn't explain it that way, and I'm not so bent on you explaining it the right way and understanding it the right way as I am you needing to realize there has to be works. So the Reformed view or the view that's more Calvinist or predestinationist is that if you have genuine faith, then you will have genuine works. If there's no genuine works, then the faith was never there. If that's how you understand it, how you want to explain it, that's fine. As long as you recognize that for the faith to be real, it must produce works. There are people of other persuasions in Christianity that take more of an Arminian view, more of a free will view, and they have their verses too. And they explain it different than the Reformed view. I lean more towards what I just told you. But there's people that explain it differently than me, and I don't get all upset. I used to, but I don't anymore. When they explain it in a different way, as long as they understand true faith works. We're justified by not a dead faith, but by a living faith. That's how we're justified. That's how you harmonize Paul and James. So if you want to explain it that way, that's fine. If there's no fruit, there's no root. And if there is no fruit, the Messiah said you cut the branch off of the vine and throw it in the fire. But every one that produces fruit, he prunes so it can produce what? More fruit. My final word today. And I told you this was a sobering text today. Compared to the many who will be lost, only a few will be saved. Now it makes sense as to why the Messiah said, narrow is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. Now it makes sense. So I urge you to commit your way to a Heavenly Father today. If you have not done so before, pledge allegiance to Him. Be loyal to His Word. Go ahead and get rid of whatever it is that might be holding you back. If you're sitting here listening to the sermon and you know something's holding you back, Nip that thing in the bud. Get rid of it. It's not worth your salvation. Get rid of it. Be loyal to Yahweh. We don't have much time on this earth. Statistically, I'm about halfway done. <laughs> I mean, I could live to be 120. I don't know. Kenneth Copeland said he's going to be 120. <laughs> I could live that long. I don't know. I don't know. I might die tomorrow. But it's appointed that a man wants to die and after this, the judgment. I don't know how much longer I have. Stats, I'm about halfway through. 40 years old. Stats, I, I won't make it out of my 70s, uh, males in America. We only have a short time here on this earth. We have the potential to live forever in the kingdom of heaven. Not playing a harp on a cloud, but eating the best apples you've ever eaten, the best avocados, rejoicing, dancing, talking with the prophets, talking with the patriarchs, just having a good time, keeping the feast days and all that. So people die every day, and your day might be next. 
not something we like to think about, but it's just it's reality. I've seen it happen. So commit 100% to him. 100% committed. He is waiting with arms open wide to those who come to him in repentance. All unrighteous deeds will be forgotten when you repent and strive to follow him. And when you fall, get back up. Proverbs says the righteous person falls seven times and gets back up. But the wicked stumble into ruin. They wallow in it. Don't wallow in the mud. Don't give up. If you fail tomorrow, if after hearing this lesson you fail tomorrow, you repent, ask Yahweh to forgive you and get yourself back in the race and say, I'm walking the narrow road because I'm committed to you, Yahweh. Thank you for forgiving me based upon the work of the Messiah. Thank you for forgiving me. I'm back in the race. I'm back on the road again. A righteous person does that. He will forgive you. You must repent. You don't want to hear the words, and I don't want to hear the words, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I don't want to hear those words. What I want to hear is, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen.